0: I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, A podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to
1: sleep. On today's episode, we explore disruptions in trade routes, the meltdown of your local tech sector, and a very important milestone for German kebab. And Swiss kebab. And the world, actually. And a little later, we'll be speaking with Bryce Bashak of Bloomberg, that is literative, about whether WTO is fit for purpose, whether multilateralism can save the day, and how to avoid getting your bike stolen. In Geneva, and as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. Without further ado, let's get into let's it. Let's get into it.
0: Welcome everybody to episode thirty-six: the atomic number of krypton. Yes, Krypton. For those of you not fans of movies with Russell Crowe, Henry Cavill, or Christopher Reeves in them, Krypton is a colorless, odorless, tasteless, noble gas that occurs in trace amounts in the atmosphere and is often used with other rare gases in fluorescent lamps. If you're not familiar with that, it's also the place where Superman is from, if I'm not mistaken.
1: First of all, Gases has three S's. Okay, I didn't know that. Second of all, that's Christopher Reeve. Isn't it? God rest his soul. Reeves? Reeve? Rip. Rest <laughs> in peace. Anyway, 36 really is the atomic number. Sorry, Artie, Artie, I need to interrupt you for a second. What else is no? I think we have the wrong idea about the podcast. As you know, we're still on kind of the pre-revenue part of our journey. We talk a lot about tech. so I know this, all too well. Yeah. But now I read some people are paying up to $50,000 to appear in podcasts. And we're letting these jokers like this Bashek guy come on here for free. It's ridiculous. Uh, I may have
0: forgotten to mention, Rob, that they are actually paying us. The money has just been coming into the uh, TS bank account labeled the RD slush fund. RD slush fund (laughs) or ASF. (laughs) But um, make sure I give you whatever the correct amount is that you're due. I think that now is the proper time to say, F you pay me. It's (laughs) Also, that reminds me, rest in peace, Ray Liotta and Paul Servino. I think I'm realizing I'm getting older when the people I grew up with in movies are dropping like flies. I know Ray Liotta is not super fresh. It just it happened what a month or two ago. But I think it's important that we point that out. Also, weirdly enough, Polly Servino got whacked not long after. And Olivia Newton Olivia Newton John. Her. She also passed away. She dropped. So rest in peace. I, I know you're now I know what it's like to be you basically, because all the people you grew up with started dying. <laughs> <laughs> and also the furniture starts falling apart around you. It's terrible. I, actually, it's weird that I have this much of an affiliation with him because I was like, honey. Ray died. I can't believe it. She's like, who? Yeah, thank you, Suheila. That's the reaction I should have had. But anyway. <laughs> That's <laughs> neither here nor there. That really is neither here nor there. I also need to make a correction from last episode. Yeah. I was able to get my moon swatch. As I mentioned the listeners yeah. will know, uh, you remember this is the plastic watch. Yeah, the bio ceramic one that I'm currently wearing as Rob is uh, glaring at me Are menacingly. She? Yeah. <laughs> also, this was not because of my buddy Habib solely, I mentioned that last week, but rather his wife Tita, so I need to mention this before she does beat me up. So it's important to note that it was Tita who actually got me this moon's watch. Thanks to her. Thank I, you, Tita. Nope. It's a
1: really great plastic watch. A, a bioceramic, but anyway. Maybe you can get him some maybe plastic rubber clogs and maybe some Mickey Mouse stuff. As long as they're bioceramic, I'll wear them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so shout out to Tito. All right then, let's get into this episode's What Went Wrong This Week segment. Do we still wanna keep calling it What Went Wrong This Week? Some stuff did go wrong, so this week it should be fine. Because I feel like when I say it, you're looking at me funny. So I don't know if you don't wanna tell me that it doesn't sound like title. There could be a positive week, this isn't it. This isn't it, so this is not the week to remove it. In any case, Disruptions in global trade due to geopolitics and climate change, among other things, are in the news, leaves us asking, what's next? So we're starting to see the effects of extreme weather patterns and climate change, not just on our TV these days, but also feeling them on our wallets. That is to say, we're seeing the economic effects of climate change. So the Rhine, which has been a pillar of German, Dutch, and Switzerland's economies, so that touches us profoundly, is set to become virtually impassable and stemming flows of diesel and coal, which as we know are important for our economies. So the continent's rivers and canals contribute Roughly around 80 billion to the region's economy as a mode of transport, which is a lot, in case you were wondering. The disruption to waterways are a challenge at the best of times, but this is also occurring during the same time as we're talking about recession within Europe. And then Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is also fueling inflation by squeezing food and other supplies. So the situation is not great, okay. I, I think, to put it mildly. It also, I should also mention there's energy crisis in France and the UK also going on. also mentioned, which is funny to me, is that Italy is also, the water is too low for, to water rice fields. And so they can't have pasta a la vongole. So that's that's also like uh, pretty serious. I don't know what you think, Rob.
1: I thought pasta was made with wheat. The, the clams. Oh, the clams. Vongole, is a clam. Why? Why do you? Where? Where do the clams go? They go to rice fields. I guess. Okay. See that? See why I'm confused? <laughs> Where's the rice and pasta a la vongole? You see what I mean? I mean, I'm not a chef, but um, anyway. So <laughs> I I think I think it's really interesting. We, You're a salty chef. <laughs> So I don't, you're right. Clam. I don't like Clams. Anyway, What do you think about it, <laughs> <laughs> clams aside? We've read for many years these long-term strategic estimates of what could change. For instance, polar ice caps disappearing. So you could suddenly run a boat all the way over the top of the world or the bottom, and you could make a travel easier. Or
0: just so across if you're a flat earther.
1: This other way. Yeah, exactly. Just keep going until you fall right off the edge. So we've heard about these things, but to see them happening. So now climate is changing where you can ship. And this is not the only thing that it's you know, that, that's disrupting trade flow. There's old fashioned disruptions of where you can put ships and trucks and stuff. During these Chinese exercises around Taiwan, thank you, Nancy Pelosi. Love her. They <laughs> the the, the strait between Taiwan and main mainland China was basically blocked to shipping. And I don't know what it is, 30, 40 percent or something of world trade goes through this. So it's incredibly disruptive, not only for a lot of different types of trade, but especially for trade related to tech, so chips, technology, devices and so on. So I feel like we've got two trends that are coming together. We've got climate crisis, which is changing the way trade is going to be moving physically. And then we have this geopolitical nonsense, which is also blocking major trade routes and causing probably people to think, well, now we've got to push our boats in a different direction. So I think we talk about trade in a kind of more paperwork, conceptual way, but this is trade literally where do your boats and trucks go? Mm -hmm. And so it is having profound and even visible effects now, for sure. I
0: think for me, it's straight up. Now, again, I want to preface this by saying, I don't know if this is just because it's in the news and that's why it feels like it's more real, or maybe it's because I was literally baking the last two weeks, but it feels like we're living through these effects rather than just reading about what may come. And on top of that, we've talking about the economic hits that we may see. And then you add on top of that geopolitical issues, which we'll get to a bit later, I think it's really making for like a perfect storm of what should not be happening. And I don't think anybody really has a solution at this point, which is probably makes it even more alarming in a way. I guess we made a joke about Nancy Pelosi before, but I don't think that trip helped, but it did serve to highlight this issue that you're talking about, which is what happens if there is more than just simply geopolitical tensions, but something even more, similar no matter what we're seeing in Ukraine right now, what happens to shipping through that that Strait? And I think this is something that people really haven't thought about. We'll talk to Bryce a little bit later about this, about how trade agreements were really not made for the modern day in many ways, right? But I think they put that assumption in there that trade would just happen, and geopolitical tensions were really also an assumption that they did not exist or they would not be an issue moving forward. I think we're seeing the, the, very much the opposite.
1: I think it's also telling the story you just read, which says, you know, what are two big things that are being blocked due to the Rhine's low level? Coal and diesel. But meanwhile, as Rome burns, I just bought a thousand liters of heating oil to put in my house. And so <laughs> you get
0: to, to kill a whale. Summary world.
1: What about my diesel jeans. That's
0: what you're talking about, <laughs> Anyway, we are also reaching an inflection point in the tech sector. So as you mentioned, the big companies are also suffering almost universally. So money is drying up. Japan SoftBank has been in the news taking staggering losses of up to like $23 billion over the last quarter. And after almost literally begging startups to take their money During the pandemic, now people are having to either rework their thinking on picking the companies they choose to invest in a bit more judiciously or double down on what they're already doing. Going back to SoftBank, they've already had to sell stakes in the only bets they made that actually worked, and it's Alibaba and a couple of uh, Japanese telecoms. And as a result, the Wall Street Journal is also telling us that Silicon Valley companies are running around in circles, which I guess is reassuring. And many are still spending their time or absurd amount of time talking up weird ways that they can spend their money on. So things like lavish retreats.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, probably the most disturbing part of where the tech sector is going is that Tinder was actually considering metaverse dating. What could go wrong? But they kind of backed off of that. So dating with an avatar. So I said this is more of a bad news segment. That could be a good news segment thing. I think we. I'm 10 pounds lighter in the the metaverse. (laughs) Thank you. So in the tech sector, it's interesting because, of course, we knew there's a bubble, but you never really know until it actually pops. So we know that Netflix has taken gas. We know Meta is losing subscribers. We know these companies that have been cleaning up are now hitting difficult times. And SoftBank is just losing such huge amounts of money, 23 billion in a quarter. But it shows how incredibly frenzied they were. They were throwing money at people. The the bankers said we felt like we were salespeople. Hmm. Not that we were doing due diligence, we were deciding where to invest. Have you seen that meme, shut up and take my money? Yeah, that's probably that's the like one. the logo of SoftBank. That's the one. So what so what comes out of it? I mean, it's going to be interesting to see which companies stick around. And again, when we've talked the last couple of weeks, maybe these companies are not as immune to competition as we thought. It's just cyclical. And even Amazon, as we said, overinvested. they're shutting warehouses. They look suddenly vulnerable. So Let's see. It's also interesting to see what tech is looking at in different places. I think we see that tech is really now trying to figure out how to deliver your groceries in 23 minutes instead of 27 minutes.
0: 24 minutes or less.
1: And I'm not sure. I'm not sure this is actually going to solve this whole world is ending thing. I
0: wish I could take credit for this joke, but have you seen that Ronnie Chang Netflix special when he talks about Amazon Prime? No, Prime yesterday. <laughs> i want one pen in a box <laughs> and I want it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think it, your point on it being cyclical is actually very much true. I mean, most of the companies we're talking about nowadays, the, the really big companies, the Amazons, the Facebooks of the world, they actually came out of downturns in the economy. So now is really where you see which who are the companies who, who have merge, actually the best yeah. business plan. So Amazon came out of the dot com crisis. Facebook, I think, started a little bit before oh seven oh eight, but they they came through it unscathed or even bigger. And now I think we'll see a bit of the same thing. And now you're going to see who can actually flow because I think it was quite difficult to not make money even. I made money on Bitcoin. So that's a ghost to show you that it's a low bar. Yeah, that, that is. Anyway, my investments are neither <laughs> here
1: nor there. Like most things I don't want to talk about. No, no. I like to keep an asset light model. That way I don't go through cycles. Emphasis on light. I don't go through cycles at all. We just spend every penny. You're keeping the
0: economy <laughs> afloat is what you're doing because it's demand driven. So uh, also uh, speaking of tech, so chip production also seems to be up as I think you predicted a couple of months ago, just in time not like the supply chains, for a slowdown in demand. So remember when we started talking about a massive shortage of microchips that was holding back production in many sectors, especially automotive? I think it was, I can't remember when we talked about it, but I know we did. Listeners, go back and listen. We don't mind the free listens. But now as production is picking up and the U.S. passes a law to bring in lots of public investment into the area, companies like Micron Technologies are saying that the market is actually heading for a downturn. This follows exactly the same pattern a lot of analysts had predicted during the time of high demand because of these long cycles that it takes to actually ramp up production of things like microchips, which we found are quite important. But on top of that, which you alluded to also in the beginning, there are these geopolitical situations all around the world. And we may be heading into a situation in which we need much more extra demand in this sort of fragmented market It's highlighted by for example recently Taiwanese officials recently wanted to force Apple supplier Foxconn to unwind an 800 million dollar investment into a Chinese chip, com- chip company as Taipei seeks to sort of move itself closer to the US this is i guess a good example of what we've been talking about on in terms of friendshoring or the move towards friendshoring going on and what what that actually means and what it could look like the problem with that is that analysts are saying it may be actually difficult to do so since m- so much of Foxconn is invested in mainland China and it'll be much more difficult for them to divest from the company. So It may have the opposite effect of fortifying China's operations in microchips. So for me, I think it, we're playing a little bit of whack-a-mole. That's the best way I can describe it. I'm sure you have a much more erudite explanation, Rob.
1: No, I think that Foxconn the, the, will be fine because they've diversified into Wisconsin. Next door to you, because you're in Michigan. Yeah, that's great.
0: Indiana. Right in the middle there. Same thing.
1: Yeah, I think this is the kind of thing that happens. It takes years. It takes tens of billions of dollars it takes an incredible amount of technology to ramp up production. And the U.S. just gets around now to voting legislation called CHIPS, which is meant to... No pun intended. To, to, ...to address competitiveness gaps vis-a-vis China. And it's always kind of fighting the last war, so that there's plenty of CHIPs now. Demand goes down. Are we really going to install capacity that's somehow hugely subsidized in the U.S.? And you remember also the analysts have said, and they're right, we're not going to change the direction of travel here. Whatever production is supported by these kinds of subsidies in the U.S., is not going to be significant. So we're still depending on Taiwan, Korea, and the East in general to develop these chips. So it's a story of when you hit these crises, what do you do? When does the effect actually cause a reaction for politicians to do something? Is it the right thing? And what's, what eventually distortions is it going to cause?
0: You know what's not winning? Domino's Pizza. So Get the door. It's it's Domino's. It's not Domino's, in Italy at least. Their footprint in the home of pizza has proved to be short-lived with Italians surprisingly favoring local restaurants over the American version. Who would have thought? So the last of Domino's 29 branches have closed after the company started operations in the country only seven years ago. But I, for one, I just want to know who in upper management in their fever dream thought that opening a Domino's pizza shop in Italy, of all places, was a good idea. Like, I would like to see the video or, like, the audio of that conversation. I love Domino's. Your bias, is so good. Well, look, I think Italy was wrong. I mean, it's such a good food. I just know a trade war is incoming, so we have to stop importing something from Italy. How about we send all the Italians in Staten Island back as a recourse?
1: Already just a quick note on that. They're not Italians. They're uh, Americans. It, so it's not called Staten Italy? <laughs> if you drop them into italy it's like taking somebody out of the zoo and putting them back into the, <laughs> back into the vest like taking a zebra out of henry Vila's zoo and putting it back in
0: italians in new york would be shocked to know that gabagool is not a real thing <laughs> and mozzarella is not called moots moots it's not called moots, in it called a, moots? no it's not even down I, I try to explain it to them whenever i go back home but to no avail so this maybe is the solution we didn't know we needed hashtag free dominoes Bryce Bashuk is a trade reporter from Bloomberg News. He hails from the Washington, D.C. area. is not Canadian, funnily enough, as somebody told me. He's American, so this this should go pretty well. You can find Bryce's work on Twitter, at bbashuk, or on Bloomberg News, where he writes regularly. So Bryce, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Listeners should know this is actually our first in-person interview. So we're really excited to have you on board. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up in Geneva covering the trade beat?
2: Thanks for having me on the podcast. And and it's really great to see you guys in person. I have to say, love your podcast and I'm happy to be here. So I'm a journalist with Bloomberg News. I've been doing for the past you know eight years, I've been writing about the WTO here from Geneva. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. When I started in journalism, I was covering business and uh, telecommunications, so the switch from telecom to trade was, uh, well, Harsh. Yeah. It's easy. It easy. <laughs> One very technical uh, beat to another. That being said, I've, I've been privileged to uh, be here in Geneva for some pretty epic uh, times in the trade community, particularly at the WTO. And so what's it been like covering
0: trade, an institution like WTO, in an environment that's made it such a polarizing topic? You alluded to this just now. How's has it changed over your career? And is it a topic that you think or
2: you've seen that garners more or less attention? Right. So when I arrived here in Geneva, it was 2014. It was the halcyon days of T. TTIP, TPP, and this broader shift towards a more global economy driven by the United States, that has obviously changed. Where we are now is a more polarized environment, where the United States has taken a step back from trade leadership and focused on its domestic priorities and its most important trade agreements, namely NAFTA. The Trump administration obviously changed the game. Robert Lighthizer came in, said, you know, we are being ripped off. I'm sorry, we, America, is being ripped off by trade agreements that were signed, you know, in the post-Cold War era. They made sense at a time when America was celebrating its triumph over the Soviet decline, and maybe it had ceded too much to economic integration at the expense of workers in Ohio, the Sun Belt, the Rust Belt. Do you so, think he had a point?
1: I mean, so we, we of course, panicked in Geneva. We were running around in circles, screaming, a Trump bad, Lighthizer bad. Did, he, did they have a point? There is no doubt that the agreements that were signed on the
2: multilateral level in 1995 are no longer relevant to today's economy. None of them address the digital economy other than the uh, e-commerce moratorium, which, by the way, almost failed two months ago. And just by the grace of Ngozi was it saved. Now, all these trade agreements that were signed in 1995 don't address the, of the, the emergence of the digital economy. The largest companies in the world fall through the cracks of all these agreements. There's a, there's a telecom agreement, but that has to deal with Ma Bell way back mm. in the 80s and 90s. Great company. few are talking it. So all these agreements are no longer relevant today. They have baseline elements such as the subsidies, and countervailing measures, technical barriers to trade. The GATT itself are important backbones of the global economy, but they have not been updated in 25 years. And the amount of progress that has happened in 25 years, just, just think about what you had in your pocket 25 years ago. It was not the cell phone that you have right now. It was a Savage Garden album <laughs> and a giant CD player. <laughs> true story. I'm not proud of it, but it's true. We're, we're still in the savage garden era of trade, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's time for a reboot. Josie so- wants to stand with you on the mountain, <laughs> and so so we, of course, then jumped for joy when the WTO was able to actually have have a six second success in MC12 recently. They've they've agreed to something. Do you think that's part of the reboot, or is it a? pre-reboot, reboot? reboot. So, I I mean, I'd answer that question with another question. How do you define
2: success at the WTO? And and that's really an important part of what we're talking about for the future multilateral trading system. Success, as, as we're talking about it with MC12, the expectations were so low going into this ministerial. The expectations were basically if members, if 164 members, two of which were at war with each other, are unable to come to any agreement, then perhaps it's time for business to move on. And perhaps it's time for larger economies like the United States and EU to focus on different forums like the OECD or create new forums. Because the WTO, if it can't agree on baseline stuff like fisheries agreements, which have been discussed for 20 years then maybe this isn't the form. So in terms of defining success at MC-12, yes, it was a success in that 164 members, again, including two at war with each other actively, were able to come to agreements on piecemeal conclusions that they're not going to change the world fundamentally. But you know what? It shows that governments are able to reach across the aisle and make compromises.
0: I mean, you cover this beat and probably a lot different from other guests we've had on, but when you're talking to delegates from these countries, do they acknowledge these things that you're talking about? You know, the agreements are not really relevant for 2022 since, you know, they're more relevant for a Savage Garden album back in the in the late 90s, the equivalent of that. It, it, do they acknowledge this and say, yes, we need
2: to do better or is it more of more of the same? Well, let's talk about the pressures that are going in the global economy right now. Supply constraints caused by Uh, The huge, massive demand from the United States as as a result of the pandemic. Talking about constrictions on key goods from Russia and Ukraine as a result of that war. You're talking about rising inflation. You're talking about food crisis. None of the agreements that were included in MC-12 will have a meaningful impact on that. Yes, there was an agreement that members should help facilitate World Food Program exports. That's important. That's good. And and I think in previous podcasts you've talked about how multilateral agreements are, are basically the most watered-down base agreements that 164 members can make. This is good. I mean, there's an important reason why multilateral institutions like the WTO exist. After World War II, people looked at the, you know, across the abyss and said, this is a time when we need to work harder to integrate our economies, to work harder to communicate our problems and resolve them peacefully rather than through kinetic conflict. So to answer your question, these are underwhelming agreements, but it's good that it's happening.
1: I think you're mentioning different fora, different ways of doing this. So we know we've got challenges that cannot be solved unilaterally. You know, the U.S. is, one of the most climate affected countries and yet so is Switzerland by the look of the last two weeks. <laughs> so I think this this idea of, you know, we have to do this together, but our institutions maybe are more challenged than ever. You know, is there, I mean, is this the end of globalization? We had a watered down agreement from MC12. We we're very happy with it. You know, are there other avenues? Can globalization succeed? I mean, Michelle, every episode tells us globalization is not over. But how do you react to that? Is, you know, have we reached the end of it? Are we going to take a different track now?
2: I believe that globalization is not ending. I think that I believe in the dandelion theory of globalization. It will change, but it will always exist. Whether the field is mowed one year, these dandelions will still come back. People are social animals. They want to communicate and trade with each other. And if they don't, they are in conflict. If if you and I are working for a more peaceful world, a world without conflict, we should encourage the idea of trading and communicating and urging greater
1: integration of our economies. That's interesting. You mentioned also OECD. So there maybe there are four that are not fully multilateral. Yeah. That are that, that just includes maybe the you know the the top economies, they just, they do cover most of trade, you know, OECD is an example. Maybe that's a solution. The only counter I
0: would see to that is this is more of the the larger economies leading the way and having the rest of developing nations follow along. And, you know, we've had a counter argument to that for, you know, I guess the last couple of years where India and the countries similar to that have been holding up negotiations on the basis. Well, you did it first. And so now we're just, you know, following your lead. Now they want to take the lead on these negotiations rather than have OECD countries Setting the rules forward and them just following them. Do you see this as as, uh, as a way forward? It is it a credible complaint? what I should say, if the OECD, so I should say, if the OECD does something, then are all countries, developing countries, after that mandated to follow?
2: Let's take the U.S. perspective for for an example. There is a bipartisan belief that the agreements and the disciplines that were agreed at the multilateral level are not holding up. China is a key example. Whether a market economy and a non-market economy, as it's in phrase, can work together in this environment is an open question. What we are seeing with this democratic administration, which is less pugnacious than the, than the previous administration, is this emphasis towards friendshoring, which is essentially taking manufacturing away from China and towards those economies like Vietnam or Malaysia that are considered to be more stable politically or holding democratic beliefs that align with the U.S., that trend, whether that will persist, really depends on the American populace, whether they are able to continue to elect leaders that believe in economic integration or whether there is another election in the future where uh, the American populace basically votes for a leader that will bring manufacturing home rather than basically separating uh, the U.S. and Chinese economy. Mm. And
1: what do you think there's any hope for, for the EU Actually, no. I mean, let me rephrase that. The European Union is, is, a, is a really important doesn't pay your bills thing. So it's a really important, cool thing. But maybe the leadership hasn't been there. So the U.S. was absent. The EU responded, and now they're they're coming forward with some big things. I mean, regulation on sustainability, regulation on data privacy. So they're trying to get out front of things that will 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 change the world for the better.
0: There's actually a new movie coming out called Regulate This.
1: Robert De Niro, <laughs> Billy Crystal. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I I really I liked it. I didn't couldn't get in. Starring the heads of the EU, who yeah. nobody knows <laughs> except cookies. Before you go in there, so do you do you think Europe could be? So the US is not going to be reliable for a while. It's going to be back and forth. Can Europe save us?
2: The the Brussels effect is an unstoppable force. We've seen that in basically in the Brexit negotiations, in a trade war with the United States. Europe is standing up for himself. But Europe, the EU, is a project. It's imperfect. It uses regulations to align countries that might otherwise be at war. So far, it's working okay. The current or the recession that's about to confront the EU will test that. Whether it comes out better and stronger, it's an open question right now. I think what is heartening, if you're an observer of the EU, is its response to Russia's attack to Ukraine. You've seen alignment among EU nations that you haven't seen. I mean, in my lifetime, it's 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 quite amazing. So I mean, really, this is this is one of these times when it
1: we didn't even see that in alignment in terms of whether you should be able to take a ski lift on one side of Mont Blanc or the other.
0: No, well, you don't ski on Mont Blanc
1: or whatever. Perfect.
0: Yeah, you know, one of those snowy things. Yeah, a Chamonix <laughs> <laughs> next to Mont Blanc. That's the one. <laughs> to, to put a finer point on this, judging by this conversation, there seems to be a lot going on and a lot of it is stimulating intellectually also. Can be a bit scary, depending on who you ask. What advice do you have for young journalism majors or or people who are looking to hoping to cover trade and, and globalization or the WTO in the future?
2: I'm grateful for the opportunity to cover this beat. It's it's been so phenomenal to learn from really smart people here in Geneva about how the world works to get out of bubbles like Washington, like Brussels. And yeah, Geneva, it's its own Brussels bubble sometimes, but there are really smart people who really care about you know the future of our global economy. I think in terms of what advice you'd give to journalists, I'd say, ask dumb questions. Say, I don't understand this. How does this work how did you learn about this or or where do i find this information it's, it's one of the gifts of being a journalist you get to ask really dumb questions and and
1: questions that people basically accept as given and you actually open up the story that way
2: it, it's hard to explain complex ideas like the multilateral trading system to people who you know it doesn't affect them on a daily basis so bringing that home and understanding how it affects regular people I think that's that's a really important message, and I I hope there's more journalists out there who want to communicate the importance of Global Geneva and the impact that it has on people's lives.
1: I think we need more of you. Can can we We need
0: more of you in this world? Okay, so Bryce, I think that brings us to the expat-focused part of the interview, and as you are an American, this is doubly applicable for you. What can you tell us that you've learned about your home country, in this case, the U.S.? Also, I should add that somebody told me you were Canadian before we did this interview. I think it was just playing mind games with me because... Sometimes you can't tell. No, it's very difficult. You go out there
1: and you can't tell. A. <laughs> he if you did, go out there, you play hockey, you're like, I don't even know if I'm Canadian out I, here.
0: I, I knew he wasn't Canadian when he didn't bring a <laughs> bottle of maple syrup with him. to this interior. So what have you learned about the U.S. while living abroad, in this case Switzerland, that you didn't realize before you became an expat? For example, Swiss cheese is not a monolith.
2: First of all, I'll quash the rumors of being a Canadian. I love Canada. I played lacrosse as a youth and learned how to fish up north. That said, I was born in Chevy Chase, Maryland, the mean streets of Chevy Chase. And uh, coming here to Europe, uh, I would say travel is a great educator. There are a lot of similarities between Geneva and D.C. You can walk down the street and hear three or four different languages. You've got this centralized bureaucracy that, that runs the city. And you have all these organizations that, that spread out from it. In that way, it feels a little bit like home. But Geneva is a beautiful place. Europe is a beautiful place. I would say, to answer your question directly, the biggest thing I've, difference I've learned is the amount of vacation time you get in Europe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. So one of the things we do here in Switzerland is steal bikes, especially in Geneva, which is Rob. And that's how you know you're here. So have you had your bike stolen here or anywhere else? So I've owned two bicycles here in Geneva. Neither have been stolen. I've learned the
2: lesson of owning a bicycle in D.C., was stripped down to its frame after a weekend away i mean they took the brakes they they took everything (laughs) it was just a little sad metal frame hanging to a a metal stop so what i've done here is basically bought a very inexpensive bike which which in switzerland is 200 francs still a lot yeah and uh, i bought it at the used bike sale i strapped some duct tape around it and made it all muddy and nobody wants to steal it so it hasn't been stolen yet
1: so this is pretty important advice for those of you who are listening from geneva or washington yeah that might take it. the wheels off anyway <laughs> a certain, yeah Do they leave the seat on
0: no everything <laughs> so uh, what's your favorite kebab
1: place in geneva
0: and before you say alamir which we know it is if it's not in geneva what is your guilty pleasure so
2: parfum de uh, Take it out. Yeah. it's fantastic i feel i feel triggered i feel
1: like this is this you're right who
2: invited it, it, this guy? You're right. I have no complaints about this institution other than recently I've seen stickers on the prices reflecting inflation. Yeah. Which, which, you know, they had good prices. And they're still pretty good. Yeah. But they're going up.
1: Have you ever been approaching it from the other side that you normally do and you actually find out that you went to El Amir by accident? <laughs> I have not. Okay. Do you ever do that at 2 a.m. because it sometimes gets confusing out there?
2: I have children. I'm at bed at 10.
1: Okay. Okay. Weak. He's waking. Okay, at folks. Us. He's waking. Okay, at us. folks. You <laughs> heard it here. close to bed. At <laughs> 10. We can edit that. Edit that in. We'll put 4 a.m. If people want to see a little bit more about what you're doing, what you're writing, how do they find you?
2: Sure. Best way is to subscribe to Bloomberg or to go on the website. I also post my stories, links, and things I'm interested in at B-Bashik at Twitter. B B A S C H U K.
0: Following people also we are
1: subscribers of bloomberg yes collectively collectively we are doing our fair bit We have three licenses (laughs) that we're using at any given time
0: excellent bryce thanks for having having joined us Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on and to have you as
1: our inaugural first live guest
2: it was a lot of fun thank you
1: okay Artie. that takes us to our next segment this is uh, where we bring in michelle on the end of globalization watch so michelle we ask you every one of our broadcasts, is globalization finally dead?
3: Well, I have some news, because globalization might indeed be over, or at least in terms of equality for streaming services. So just to give you a little bit of context, Disney is killing it in the streaming world. They just beat Netflix for streaming service with the most subscribers, so 221 million subscribers for the end of the year. But they're not really as hopeful as you would think. Actually, they kind of learn from Netflix's experience or kind of bad experience and are assuming that there's just no more subscribers to be gained. So you have to monetize them. And how do you monetize them? You have to add well, ads. So yeah, much like Disney Parks, Disney Plus will have a bunch of different tiers and bundles priced completely differently, whether you want ads on Disney Plus, on Hulu, on ESPN, because Disney owns everything. And all of us with the basic $7.99 a month, or $12.99 if you're in Switzerland, will be automatically dumped into this ads category.
1: That blows, that's like it's like going to a movie with
0: ads. This is why I'm really close. So, so welcome back to Viagra ads in the middle of your <laughs> screening targeted. of Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> No no link between the movie or Viagra. I'm sure they're targeted. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Right? That's just those. for
3: you. Well, actually, they're making quite a bit of money with these new ad revenue streams because this year they're about to make $9 billion, that's billion with a B, in ad revenue.
0: Dr. Evil will be proud.
3: That's more than they've ever made or that anybody else has ever made in selling ads.
0: I think they've done well because they've actually killed off all of the ad-supported models that we had in sitcoms and all that kind of programming. Everybody migrated to Netflix and such, and now they're just like, we're back. Mm.
3: Wait, so how does this end up with uh, globalization not being over? Well, it turns out that European TV tends to get ads in between shows instead of right in the middle of your show. And rumor has it that Disney is going to be doing just that, but just in Europe. So while the U.S. has to pay for Hulu, Dis- Disney, ESPN in a bundle with ads all over the place, we'll be here chilling with just one subscription to Disney+, Plus, which, as you know, here, all of the Hulu shows go on Disney+, and just with pre-roll ads and potentially ads at the end, though I don't know if anybody would pay for those. And my question is, have streaming services just forgotten that people can just, like, pirate stuff? Because I-,
1: I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. That's weird you would mention that. I would prefer a monopoly in this segment. I want Netflix back, and I want all the rest of these to be merged into it. I agree. Thank you, comrade. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Michelle. That does it for our end of Globalization Watch. Stay tuned for next episode. That brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. So we got a couple of stories we wanted to keep people updated on. Obviously, this is one everybody's already aware of. It's a big one. Kebab turned 50 this week in Germany. The problem is, it's a German kebab. Now the thing is, this kebab, I many of you listeners in Germany already know this, it's got less meat and more bread than the Turkish original. Half the calories. And it's not the same as the shawarma here. And the difference for me is that there is one dollop of red flame stuff that's hidden somewhere. in the. It's not on the front. Mm. It's predictable where it is, but it's going to be painful.
0: I mean, the Turkish listeners might not like this, but what kebab aficionados sometimes forget to mention is that there's a distinction between Turkish kebab, Kurdish kebab, and the shawarma that you find here in Geneva, to use the technical term. Yeah, so it's important to mark the difference. So I think the red dollop that you're talking about only comes in British places. But co- listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. In any case, I think this is big news because it turned fifty, and it really aligns with the ethos of this podcast, which is filling
1: in our segments with useless information. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that this uh, hard hitting journalism doesn't tell us is how do they know? What do you mean? It's fifty. Like what was the day? You know what I do know. What? Listeners may not,
0: but they're estimating the kebab sales in Germany reached 2.5 billion in 2021. That's how big of a deal it is. billion units of kebab. No, billion billion euros. (laughs) Oh. There's probably trillions of kebab. That'd be a lot of kebab. Like, there's at least two or three
1: every time we go out units. Yeah. Metric tons. Well, the German ones are cheaper, and they're everywhere. It's true. They're absolutely everywhere. So they say it's important to know who your audience is. We want to know who our audience
0: is. And so for that, we've got Michelle coming in now to let us know a little bit more about you, the listener.
3: So top artists that our listeners are listening to are the Rolling Stones, number one, which is fine, I guess.
1: Multi-generational.
3: But then we go right back to young-ish with Kendrick Lamar. He's the
1: first guy that was married to a Kardashian on
0: this list. I know this is verified because it's definitely not me. (laughs) Or anybody
1: we know.
3: He was not married to a Kardashian. That was Lamar Odom. Totally different Uh, guy.
1: Okay. He's not on the list.
3: No, Lamar Odom doesn't make music. He's a basketball player.
1: With a drug problem.
3: Yeah, with a drug problem.
1: Okay. Sorry about that, Kendrick. Or Odom. Or Lamar. Whatever it was.
3: (laughs) Then number three is Kanye West, who's always on our list.
1: Is he married to a Kardashian? He was until the artist... Has that union been...
0: Yeah, where have you been? It's 2022. I knew they were on a little rocky ground. Is there a supply chain crisis of information? She had
3: time to date a whole other guy and then dump him.
0: Yeah, the king of Staten Island. My boy, Pete Davidson.
1: Really? Yeah. Where have you been? That can happen. You still stay married. It's not a big deal. Okay. It's just Pete, Pete
3: Davidson. Davidson. is a hall pass for everybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so who else was married to a Kardashian on this list?
3: Sadly, we don't have anybody else who's been married to a Kardashian because we have Lady Gaga, who I don't okay. think has been married to a Kardashian. No. No. no.
1: Mm-hmm. And number five.
3: Number five is Pearl Jam for all the 90s yes. people. Yes. Yes.
0: This is because I watched the Woodstock 99 thing on Netflix, and so I needed to get in touch with my inner Pearl Jam.
1: And is Savage Garden on there anywhere?
3: No, Savage Garden is not on there, though. Maybe by next episode, we'll have people who decided to listen to Savage Garden just wondering, who's Savage Garden?
1: Hey, Rob. Why is your phone broken again? Well, it's been real hot out already, as you know, and these drought conditions mean it slipped out of my hand and broke. Another expensive thing for me to fix. Well, Rob, you wouldn't have had this problem if you
0: used case folklore.
1: Case folklore? What's that?
0: Good thing you asked, Rob. Case Folklore offers customizable phone cases which come in an assortment of designs and colors. You can find out more by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore or using
1: the promo code splaining at checkout. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 36, brought to you by Krypton, not the planet, the element, the 50th birthday of Doner Kebab in Germany, and of course, sayonara to Domino's Italy. Two different cultural references, but yeah, <laughs> you mean ciao. Ciao. I ciao.
0: ciao, ciao. Ciao, Bella, ciao, I think Bella. is what you meant. We also want to thank our guest, Bryce Baschuk, once again, for joining us, as well as our executive producer and White House correspondent, Michelle Ogin, and Valentina Saponata for helping and produce this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already, and make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon in the next couple of weeks. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. I mention it every episode, but it's true. You can everywhere you get your podcasts. Most importantly, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do read them, be gentle, mostly Rob. You can also find us on Twitter at TradeSplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. You can also email us your questions, comments, the old fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com.
1: And remember everybody, Listen
0: Listen responsibly. responsibly.